Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Lisa Gilbert of Public Citizen, who explains why congressional passage of the For the People Act is urgently needed to repair America's broken democracy. Jonathan Rosenblum, an activist, organizer, and author, who examines what's at stake in the Amazon Workers Union organizing drive in Bessemer, Alabama. And Mark McBride, food service manager at the Mountain View Correctional Facility in Maine, who talks about his program that enhances prison food nutrition at the same time it trains inmates in useful culinary skills. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. 15 of 47 Hong Kong pro-democracy activists charged with subversion have been granted bail after a marathon hearing, but the entire group remains in custody, pending an appeal. They were charged under a new Beijing-imposed security law with conspiracy to commit subversion for organizing an impromptu primary election to pick opposition candidates for upcoming Hong Kong elections. China passed a law last year saying it was required to bring stability after months of militant anti-Beijing street protests. Hundreds of Hong Kong protesters gathered at the courthouse on March 1st to show support for the 47 pro-democracy activists who were among a group of 55 people arrested in police raids last month. Meanwhile, China's National People's Congress is considering new election regulations to ensure only those who they define as patriots can govern Hong Kong. Under proposed changes to the electoral law, the BBC reports, the city's heavily pro-Beijing Electoral Committee would get new powers over the Parliament or Legislative Council. The committee would effectively be able to vet all council candidates and elect many of its members, diluting the number directly elected by the public. Facing an increase of migrant crossings at the U.S. southern border, President Biden is hoping Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, will become a partner in preventing another cycle of out-of-control migration from Central America. Despite campaigning against Trump's policies, Biden wants one of the same things from the Mexican president that his predecessor did, help in keeping Central American migrants from surging north toward the U.S. through Mexico. AMLO offered little resistance to Trump's harsh immigration policies when they were first imposed. Biden has recently begun welcoming back to the U.S. a limited number of asylum seekers who are often victims of violence and kidnappings inside Mexico under a Trump-era program. But the Biden administration has maintained a separate Trump policy that empowers Border Patrol agents to rapidly expel new arrivals and turn them over to Mexican authorities. Biden has pledged to raise Trump-era limits on refugees allowed into the U.S., ending Trump's family separation policy, and is calling on Congress to pass reform legislation that would offer a path to citizenship to 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Biden has signaled he's eager to open the U.S.-Mexico border to full trade 
once the pandemic is over. A year and a half ago, activists from West Virginia traveled to Copenhagen to protest the Denmark-based Rockwool Company's plan to build a mineral wool insulation plant in their state. The company melts basalt rocks into molten lava, which is spun into a cotton candy-like fiber used in building insulation. Activists say the siting of the plant in coal-reliant West Virginia is a direct result of the state's weak environmental standards. According to In These Times, the mineral wool plant will burn several billion gallons of fracked natural gas annually, emit nine different types of air pollution, including formaldehyde and benzene, and release 471 tons of volatile organic compounds which can contaminate groundwater. Alarmed that the plant is located across the street from an elementary school, opponents hired scientists and consultants to oppose the project. Two years ago, 24 community activists were arrested for blocking access to the Rockwell construction site. Foes of the Rockwell plant are facing off against West Virginia's Republican Governor Jim Justice, a coal industry billionaire who pushed to streamline environmental permitting for fossil fuel projects like Rockwell. Members of the Jefferson County Foundation, the group that has led much of the opposition to the project, has pledged to continue the fight even after the plant opens. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. President Trump and a majority of Republican Party legislators attempted to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election based on Trump's big lie that through massive fraud, the election was stolen from him. For the first time in U.S. history, a political party tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power from one president to the next. Despite multiple failed lawsuits, In the Trump-inspired deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the seditious GOP effort failed. Now, repeating a pattern begun over a decade ago, the Republican Party is working to pass new voter suppression laws, designed to make it more difficult for communities of color and young people to vote in future elections. In fact, as of mid-February, GOP lawmakers in 43 states had introduced more than 250 bills to restrict voting access. Responding to the decades-long right-wing attack on fair elections, the foundation of America's democracy, House Democrats recently passed legislation dubbed the For the People Act. Now facing an uncertain future in the U.S. Senate, the 800-page bill would stop voter suppression efforts and partisan gerrymandering, expand voting rights, reform campaign finance laws, and strengthen ethics rules. Your reporter spoke with Lisa Gilbert, Executive Vice President with Public Citizen, who talks about the importance of the For the People Act and previews the fight ahead for passage in the U.S. Senate. It's 
hard to overstate the importance of this legislation. You know, it is groundbreaking. It's reforming democracy at a moment when it is sorely needed. And so it's been incredibly exciting to see the priority level that members of Congress and senators have put on this legislation, designating it H.R. 1, designating it S1 in the Senate, just showing that they are really grappling with the crisis that is facing us. They understand that the country is emerging from a very dark time where we had a president who uh, not only uh, did everything he could to undermine the law, but anywhere there was a norm around democracy, he broke it when it comes to corruption and self-dealing. And so, you know, there just is a, a low point in terms of trust in government and to fix that and to make sure that our, our democracy works for everyone, we, we have to pass this legislation. You know, if this legislation passes, we will truly see a sea change in our democracy. Now, when it comes to the voter suppression laws we've seen uh, really come into force in many states since 2010, what can you say about pushing back on the voter suppression laws, many of which are now being uh, promoted by Republicans across the country? There are some 250, I believe, that are now in play. So this legislation does a number of incredibly common sense things that will push back on the restrictions that um, conservatives nationwide are pushing to limit access to the ballot. So first, it requires um, each state to set up an automatic voter registration system that would gather individuals' information from government databases and registers unless they intentionally opt out. So that alone would register people in a completely different way um, and push back on, on limitations that conservatives are pushing nationwide. The law would also guarantee voters same-day registration, either at early voting sites or at precincts on Election Day. Um, so this would, uh, in turn, push back on, on restrictions that different states are pushing to try to limit um, early voting and same-day registration voting. So both of those things alone would be game changers. Um, but in addition, uh, you know, just to list one more thing from the, the litany of greatness in this legislation, it would also set up nonpartisan redistricting commissions in an attempt to get rid of gerrymandering. Um, so require each state to use independent commissions not made up of lawmakers to approve newly drawn congressional districts. Uh, so, you know, regardless of whether it's a red state or a blue state, you know, we have been seeing significant manipulation uh, in the drawing of districts for years. You know, this is something that, you know, if if fixed, it would present an opportunity for, you know, independent, unbiased, balanced redistricting that is just, you know, good government, but also pushes back on restrictions that are, that are being pushed nationwide as well. There's a major fight ahead for the People Act, H.R. 1, in the in the U.S. Senate. The major obstacle in the Senate, of course, is the filibuster that requires 60 votes to close debate. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion recently about repealing the filibuster because it stands in the way not just of this legislation, but anything else the Democrats are likely to pass in the next couple of years. I'm wondering what you can say just initially about the filibuster uh, as it pertains to the For the People Act. Many eyes have turned to looking at the filibuster uh, certainly, it is a tool that you know could be used uh, if it stays in place by Republicans, by Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, to send not only the For the People Act, but um, you know many other pieces of critical legislation that the House is going to pass, including HR four, Voting Rights Advancement Act, um, you know, to Mitch McConnell's legislative graveyard, if you will. Um, you know, we certainly don't think that the Senate minority should be able to block such popular legislation bills that are just integral to a functioning democracy. Um, and it's an outdated procedural tool. 
You know, it's not something that uh, is in the Constitution. It's something that we can change. Um, and so we're, we're hopeful that that can happen. I think, you know, all eyes have turned to some of the moderates in the Senate um, who have thus far, you know, not been open to doing away with the, the filibuster altogether. But I don't think that that forecloses making changes to it that would make it easier for us to move legislation like the For the People Act, whether that means, you know, reinstating a talking filibuster, meaning senators would literally have to hold the floor um, to to stop legislation from moving um, or, you know, some sort of carve out for democracy legislation. I think there are a lot of options for reform short of abolition of the filibuster, although at Public Citizen, we would support doing away with it altogether. And Lisa, I did want to ask you about public opinion. What do we know about the popularity of For the People Act, H.R. 1, and its provisions? It is outrageously popular. I mean, poll after poll shows that the American people, Republicans, Democrats, independents alike, want uh, ambitious reforms like this package to become law. Um, you know, there's there's no question that it's actually not partisan. <laughs> um, you know, 67 percent of Americans say they support H.R. 1. So even after they're provided opposition messages to try to persuade them away from it, you know, it's just um, understood that, you know, big money controls our politics and we need to deal with that, that voting rights is essential uh, and we need to fix that part of our system, that politicians are too corrupt and we need to do ethics laws to fix that. I think it's it's ingrained in the American psyche right now that uh, that our democracy is broken and needs to be fixed. That was Lisa Gilbert. Executive Vice President with Public Citizen. Learn more about the threats to U.S. democracy addressed by the For the People Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Through the end of March, workers at an Amazon fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama, are voting on whether or not to join the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. If a majority of the 5,800 Alabama workers vote to unionize, it would be the first such success for organized labor against the notoriously anti-union multinational online retail giant. In a recent statement, President Joe Biden defended workers' rights to form unions that, while not mentioning Amazon, did reference workers in Alabama. At a time when labor unions continue to lose membership, a victory at Amazon would be a real morale booster. In fact, since the voting began in Alabama on February 8th, more than 1,000 Amazon workers from across the country have reached out to the Retail Wholesale Union, seeking information about unionizing their own workplaces. Since the deadly coronavirus spread across the globe, Amazon has posted record profits, opening new warehouses and hiring new workers. But Amazon workers have been increasingly critical about lax COVID-19 safety standards and not sharing in the company's success. Your reporter spoke with Jonathan Rosenblum, an author and community organizer for Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant. Here he examines what's at stake in the Amazon Workers Union organizing drive in Bessemer, Alabama, and for American workers. I think what's going on in Bessemer is actually workers making history. I would say that the workers have been successful already, no matter what happens in this election. And that's not to be Pollyannish or to minimize the importance of the election results. But just having a struggle of this magnitude and to get this far against a company with such power, uh, political and economic and cultural power, is itself 
um, a testament to the workers' bravery and strength and, uh, and, and their willingness to struggle, and I know will inspire workers at warehouses and other workers throughout Amazon's global empire to take similar action in the months and years ahead. Thank you for that, Jonathan. In terms of this battle, I think it goes without saying that the eyes of the country are going to be on the result of this election, this union election. What's at stake for American workers, you know, if, if there's a win or a loss for the unions here? Obviously, this isn't the end of the union struggle in the country, but certainly it's a uh, it's a landmark point in time. Yeah, this is it is certainly a landmark struggle. But I would say that it's not uh, if the workers don't win the election, it's not the end of the struggle. It simply is another waypoint in our generational fight against global monopolies like Amazon. And if the workers win the election, then things get really hard because then they have to force the company to negotiate a contract. And with what we've seen in the run-up to this election and what we've seen with Amazon's union uh, resistance throughout the globe, um, winning that contract is not going to be easy. That Ultimately, Amazon workers are not going to build power, one warehouse, one glass tower at a time, but rather they have to unite globally, nationally and then globally, to form a powerful union so that Amazon cannot just take out one warehouse that has unionized, exclude it from its system, and then keep moving forward in its profit-making machine. So actually, the the first thing that the Bessemer workers need to do if they win the election is figure out how they're going to go out and organize, along with us, other warehouses so that they're not the only ones. Right. Now, I also want to just note, Scott, we talk about this thing about a union election, and I think it's just important, especially for your listeners who are not intimately familiar with what a National Labor Relations Board election in a hostile employer environment looks like. It is not an election like we would think about in the normal democratic term of an election where you where, for example, in the presidential election that we just went through, notwithstanding problems with the media, at least Joe Biden could get his message out, right, that he could run advertisements, he could get on the airwaves, he could do things so that people knew to vote for him. In contrast, in the union election that the Bessemer workers are going through, where Amazon is fighting tooth and nail, there's absolutely no equivalence to what we see as a democratic election. The workers go into work they're bombarded daily with these anti-union messages, text messages. When they go to the bathroom, there's a flyer in the stall telling them to vote no. When there's radio ads, there's um, captive audience meetings the company's been holding, these mandatory meetings where anti-union messages are delivered to workers. And there's absolutely no sort of equal time provision where, where pro-union messages get to get out. Absolutely none of that. And I understand that even Amazon has has changed the traffic light system outside of its Bessemer warehouse so that workers no longer have the opportunity to stop and talk to union organizers before and after their shift. So this is not really an election in a free and fair environment, but rather this is a vote that's happening in this sort of scorched earth environment where there is no pro-union message permitted by the company and all the anti-union messages are constantly bombarded against the workers. And so if the workers actually emerge from this battlefield and prevail in an election, it would be fantastic. And if they don't, 
well, then we will get back on and climb that mountain again in the coming months and years. But recognize that um, that the current election regime for workers in this country is anything but free and fair. That was Jonathan Rosenblum, author of the book Beyond $15, Immigrant Workers, Faith Activists, and the Revival of the Labor Movement. He's a community organizer for Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant. Learn more about the significance of the Amazon Workers Union organizing drive in Alabama by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. One of the less talked about miseries of prison life, at least outside of prisons, is the food. The nutritional quality is generally poor, relying on processed items high in starch, sugar, and salt with a dearth of fresh fruits and vegetables. Or sometimes it's even worse, with incarcerated men and women being served spoiled or rotten food. But for the past six years at Mountain View Correctional Facility in Central Maine, which includes both minimum and medium security facilities, the men not only are served better food, they grow it and cook it themselves. The prison food service at Mountain View not only improves the nutritional value of meals, but also serves as a job training and economic development program. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Mark McBride, who for 20 years was a local organic farmer when he took over as head of food service at the prison. Here he explains how he approached feeding hundreds of men the same way he feeds his family. And although some critics complain that the men who work on growing and preparing the prison's food are being exploited because they earn just a few dollars an hour, McBride says they're happy to learn the skills, enabling them to work for better wages in work release programs and when they go home. When I became the food service manager, I looked at trying to do some things that one would help us to have better food products, but also be able to save money. And I knew just the way we had uh, operated our home uh, and our children, we used whole foods and would break those down, use scratch cooking. You know, a lot of people, they have children, they'll go to McDonald's or Burger King and they think it's, it may be fast and easy, but it's actually a misnomer for people to think that it's inexpensive. And a lot of times if you buy good food and actually practice scratch home-style cooking, you can end up giving out a lot better product and still save money. And that's the approach we took. We got rid of things like liquid eggs, frozen liquid egg product, and got real eggs from a main farm. We ended up uh, getting all our potatoes from a main farmer year-round to a point where we make all our own home fries, all our own French fries, every potato product or potato salads all comes from a, a whole potato. I've reached out to a local dairy that makes cheese here in Maine, and we've been able to purchase that at a price that's cheaper than what we would buy the American processed cheese food that really isn't cheese. So, Mark McBride, your approach sounds like it has contributed to economic development in the region. Now can you tell me about how the incarcerated men participate in this program? I guess you call them residents. We have 
residents at our facility that are allowed to apply for different positions. And we have paid positions with agriculture and in the kitchen. They apply and we we talk to them. They're hired and they can work their way up and they're, you know, they're trained in these skills and they do everything from planting to caring to harvesting. Also started a bakery program when I got in as the food service manager so that now we produce all of our own bread, all of our own rolls, hamburger buns, hot dog buns, bagels, English muffins. We make all of our desserts um, 100%. The residents do all of this. They're trained. There's a apprentice they actually teach uh, and mentor their replacements for the position. We've had about 20, at least 25, it may be a few more by now, but at least 25 of our kitchen staff that do this are actually out working pre-release at a local commercial bakery. Right now with COVID and the uh, situation that's going on, some of them, the work release has been shut down, but that's kind of the way it is in a lot of places throughout the country. But but I mean, up until this and, and after this is over, it will continue. So it, it's been pretty neat to see that. When COVID has been tamed, do you have any future plans for things you'd like to do? Well, we're just going to continue just trying to um, increase what we're doing and do even more educational. I have a, a position, a vocational technical instructor that's been assigned to agriculture, and we're going to work on classes that would be even more intensively educational at the main state prison. They work with cooperative extension and have training that goes on there. There's beekeeping. There's a lot of things going on in a lot of different places. But as far as what we're trying to do, I guess there is a passion that I've had to try to be able to get to the point where we could actually have some type of a processing facility that we could take some of these B-grade items. And we do a lot of donation to food pantries, food cupboards, these type of places. We work with an organization called Harvest Now that donates money for seed, and we end up giving a portion of what we raise to these food pantries and food covers, and that has been a great thing. The uh, residents always like to be able to pay back and give to these type of organizations, along with the fact that we can use these fresh vegetables, the difference that it makes in the diet for these incarcerated folks to have this fresh type of food. It does a lot for morale and behavior, and that's very important. Can you say more about that? It hasn't really been tracked, but I know that we have captains that have worked for over 20 years here at the facility that would be the first and have mentioned it many times that when these foods are being given on a regular basis, that everybody goes back uh, to their unit, to their dorm, much happier and just a lot less likely to have any issues. It's Food is a big part of incarceration. It's it's something they look forward to or they don't look forward to. And in our case, we want to make sure that they look forward to it. That was Mark McBride, Food Service Manager at the State of Maine's Mountain View Correctional Facility. For more information on innovative and nutritionally enhanced prison food programs, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KKFI in Kansas City, Missouri, KGHI in Westport, Washington, Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.